Lord is my salvation. I shall not fear, I shall not worry, I shall not be concerned, I shall not be consumed, because the Lord is my salvation. If you notice in our in the bulletin this morning, the text is rather lengthy. Luke 19, 28, chapter 19, verse 28, through chapter 22, verse 47. I know that some of you, when I have a lengthy passage like that, get real nervous that it's going to take a lot of time to read it and then a lot of time to preach on it, and we'll get out of here sometime middle of the afternoon. That's not going to be the case. I'm not going to read the whole text. I'm not going to read all of that because I, I mainly want to point to some things within it that talk about the concept of Jesus showing us in the, that last week on this earth what his roles were, what has what traditionally been called the offices of Christ. Because in seeing that, we see the glory of Christ shining through in an unbelievable way. You know, we usually look at Christ in several different ways, theologically and, and biblically. We see, the, we see the person of Christ. We talk about his personhood as being both divine and human, not half divine, not half human, but totally divine and totally human. Indeed, the person of Christ, in understanding that, is God incarnate, God among us, God with us. That almighty God who has, cre- who has existed for all of, all of eternity past, as has his son, has now taken on flesh, has taken on a body, flesh and blood, and has dwelt among us. And so when we talk about the person of Christ, we talk about who he is as God-man, and in his perfections, and in all of his glory. Secondly, then, we, we tend to talk about the, the different states of Christ. We, we see Christ in his humiliation and Christ in his exaltation or his glorification. We, we see Christ in his humiliation as taking on flesh, what we just talked about, becoming man to dwell among us. And, and the writer Paul, the, in, the, in, in his book Philippians, talks about how he, he took on the form of a man and became a servant, a slave, and lived among us. Jesus himself said, I didn't come for you to serve me, but I came to serve. I, I came to, to bring salvation. I came to be the, this, uh, in my humiliation, walking as a man, when I existed for all eternity and glory, I came to show you a bit of who, of who I am and who God is. And, and then we think about the work of Christ, the person of Christ, the stages of Christ, if you will, or the states of Christ, and then the work of Christ. The work of Christ tends to uh, usually focus on his atonement. The fact that he went to the cross and he died there in our place as our substitute. That's what we are coming into Holy Week in just a, a couple of weeks to think about. That's what we will think about on that Good Friday night as we gather here to worship and think about his death, his 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 absolute total humiliation in dying in our place. He who knew no sin becoming sin so that we who have no righteousness might become the very righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God. I mean, the the beauty of that atonement is almost indescribable. But when we think about the atonement, we cannot help but think about in the work of Christ, uh, his offices, as we would refer to it, as, as our theology would talk about on, on regular occasions, his offices. 
You see, one thing that we proclaim here is, and we talked about this back in October, uh, September and October, when we looked at the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. And one of those that we talked about was solus Christus, or solo Christo, however you want to, whichever tense you want to put it in. But, but thinking about in Christ alone. And the focus of this time of year, uh, more than any other time perhaps, and we think about Christ every Sunday, we think about his resurrection every Sunday, but this particular next two weeks, more than any other time in the whole year, we think about him as he is doing his ministry among us. We, we think about solus Christos. B.B. Warfield once wrote, he said, the saving power of faith resides thus not in faith itself, but in the Almighty Savior on whom it rests. In other words, it's not enough just to have faith. We've talked about that before. It's not enough just to say, well, I have faith. I have a general faith in God. I just have a, a general spirituality or a general faith. No, the Scripture says that faith is only good, as good as the object in which it is placed. And our faith is only as good as it is when it's placed in the Almighty Savior, Jesus Christ. Solus Christus, Christ alone. The centrality of, of Christ is the, is, the, is the foundation of our faith. It's the foundation of the Protestant faith. Martin Luther said in, in, back in the 1500s, he said that Jesus Christ is the center and the circumference of the Bible. In other words, he's all around it and he's right at the middle of it. That Jesus Christ is the, th the person and the, the, the attitude that we have to have when we come to it is seeing him in all of Scripture. We see Christ in the Old Testament. We see Christ when the priests are offering the lamb as a sacrifice. We see Christ in every respect in his offices as he comes to that point. Zwingli, another reformer in, in Luther's day, said, Christ is the head of all believers who are his body, and without him the body is dead. Why is it that we desire to have such a passion for Christ? A passion to know him better and know him more fully every single day? It's because he is the head of the church. He is the head of the believer. And unless we are looking to him for guidance and leadership and direction, then the body is dead. The body can be very active. Can have all sorts of programs. Can have all sorts of, of community activities. Can, can look very much alive, as we saw in, in the seven churches of Revelation in that series on, on Christ examining his church. And, and one of the things we saw was that church can be very active, have a lot of things going on, but yet be dead. If Christ is not the living head to which the church is looking to. We desperately and urgently need in our day to hear Solus Christus proclaim over and over again in our pluralistic society. We see people saying, no, it, it's, it's what, just believe whatever you want and, and everything. I, I, I was reading a Sky magazine from, from uh, Delta Airlines this, just yesterday, an, an article out of it, and, and it, the, the article's, the front page of it said, Oprah living her faith. And on the inside, it Proclaimed her the wisest woman in America. Quite a, I know some women in here that are wiser than that. But anyway, but the point of the article was, I just believe in myself. 
And, and I have faith in myself, and so I have faith, but her faith is misplaced. Faith is only as good as the object it's placed in. And faith is only powerful. Faith is only life-changing. Faith is only living if it's placed in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. So that's what Jesus is pointing us to in this last week that He spends physically upon this earth before He comes to the Passion Week. And in that week, He shows us His, his roles of prophet of priest, and of king. And that's why I titled the sermon, You Have a Prophet, and a Priest, and a King. All wrapped up in one person when you understand His glory and His work in your life and in the life of the church and in the life of the world. Things we need to understand. Our our Baptist forebears for hundreds of years have have gone back, traced all the way back to 4th century Eusebius uh, of of Caesarea in talking about these three offices. The the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is one of my favorite confessions, for instance, put it this way, Christ and Christ alone is the fitted mediator between God and man. He is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God. There is no other prophet, there is no other priest, there is no other king of the church except this one who is, in, who is alone. And we look to him in Christ alone. If you look at these passages that we find in, in, this, in Luke's gospel that I want to just call our attention to very quickly, I want you to see how he shows himself as prophet, priest, and king. First of all, in looking in, at his prophetic role, you see in, in Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 9, you see there him talking about a parable. The parable that my headline, my Bible says, the parable of the wicked tenants. Uh, others call it the parable of the wicked servants. And he talks about how a, a man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants, to his servants, and he went away into a country for a long while. And when he came back, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant so that they beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third, and this one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? Tell you what I'll do. I will send my beloved son. I'll send my beloved son... Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants or the servants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And when, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Will he, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others? When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. A parable of, of the prophetic nature of Christ. Well, you know, the, 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 the whole parable is about God creating. He created the world and, 
And the world rejected him. The world said, we don't want to do what he wants. We want to do what we want. I want to have life my way. I want to live my my life my way. I want to just have it as I want it. And so God sent, after the fall, he sent the prophets along, other servants. And the prophets said, repent and turn away from your evil ways. Repent and turn back to God. And they killed the prophets, and they beat the prophets, and they threw the prophets out. And so God sent another prophet, and he came and he said, listen, repent, turn from your sin, and turn back to the Father, the creator of all of this. And they took that prophet, they beat him, and killed them, and run them away. And finally, in the, at just the right time, Scripture tells us, God sent his own son, which is what we're focusing on. He sent his own son. Surely those who were the servants of Almighty God, surely those who were the the tenants of the the garden that God had planted uh, that we call the world, creation, all that he did, surely those who, though they were mean to the prophets and mean to the other servants, they will be respectful of the son. But they said, no, no, this is a real threat. Those prophets were not real threats. They just kind of caused us a little discomfort. But the son is a real threat. We can't just beat him and throw him out of the garden. we got to kill him. And that's exactly what we did to Christ. Exactly what we did to Christ. The one who was without sin. The one who came as a prophet. What does a prophet do? A prophet comes and reveals the truth about God. The prophet is one who comes and proclaims God's message. The prophet is one who says, this is how God is, and this is what God says, and I call you to obedience of that. It's exactly what Jesus did. And we put him on a cross. In, in 20 verses 45 through 47, he talks to the scribes. He says, and in the hearing of the people, he said to his disciples, beware the scribes who, who like to walk around in long robes and, and love greetings in the marketplace, had the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor in the feast, the religious people. But yet they devour widows' houses and, and for a pretense make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. He came as a prophet to say, listen, listen, it's not about how religious you look. It's not about how much you go through the motions. It's about how do you respond to the call of God in your life. To have faith in Christ, to trust in Christ, but then to let that faith translate itself into a changed life that touches other people's lives who care for widows, who care for orphans, as we talked about with, with Sunrise the Children's Services, who, who care for those who are the most vulnerable and the most hurting in our world. Our lady's been studying James on Tuesday mornings in the women's Bible study. And almost every person I've talked to says, whew, This is convicting. This is tough. This is calling us to a religion that is real. Not a religion that is just for Sunday. But a religion that is real. A religion that changes my life and uses me to affect change in other people's lives. To care for their needs. To to love them. And to care for them. Because of who we are in Christ. The prophet says, come. Jesus said, I want you to understand, in Luke 22, 
35 through 38, he said, look, the scripture must be fulfilled. And I have come to show you the fulfillment of God's word. We read responsively this morning the 22nd Psalm, or at least a major part of the 22nd Psalm. The 22nd Psalm is a messianic psalm. Oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, David was writing that, but do you hear those words anywhere else? Of course you do, on the cross. As the Messiah cried out those same words, Oh, God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he goes on to show in that psalm that while it seems like God has absolutely and totally forsaken, that he really hasn't. Some of us feel like God's forsaken us. But the remainder of that psalm that we read this morning reminds us that he has not. That he still loves us, he still cares for us, even in our pain. That's the work of the prophet. The work of the prophet is to show us God and tell us what God says and speak God's truth into our lives. Jesus did that. Then he came as priest. And we, we, we understand the priest is one who intercedes on behalf of another. The, the one who, who is a mediator, who, who can somehow help us in our, in our relationship with God Almighty, the Creator, and, and the one who set all this in motion, whom we are separated from because of our sin. And so Christ's role is as a mediator, as a priest. The Old Testament priest came and they offered sacrifices. They offered the lambs, they offered the bulls, they offered the doves, whatever the the occasion called for. And each one of those sacrifices was a way of saying, God accepts sacrifice because we are sinners, and this sacrifice, at least, at least symbolically, or at least for a period of time, will, will atone for sin. But it had to be repeated over and over and over again. And every one of those sacrifices was pointing to Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Every one of them was saying, you know, this is work, this is how God interacts with us for now. But there is coming a day when the real sacrifice will come, when the real Lamb of God will walk on the face of the earth. And that's what John the Baptist called him at, at the River Jordan. There comes a time when the real sacrifice will be made to atone for sins, not over and over and over and over again, but will atone for sins once and for all in the life of those who believe. That's the role of the priest, to help us see our forgiveness of sins. He, he, he did this several ways in this passage, again, a lengthy passage, but, but in Luke 19, 41 through 44, he weeps over Jerusalem. A priest weeps because of the sin of the people. Now, we believe, and the Scripture teaches, that in Christ we become a royal priesthood. In Christ, we are priests. We are, we are those who, 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 we don't need another earthly priest. We are priests under the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so we ought to be weeping over the sins of our people and over our own sins. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He said when he, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace now they are hidden from your eyes. 
For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in from every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You didn't know the time of the coming of the Messiah. And like the, the son in the parable of the unwise and 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 unfruitful servants, they rejected the cornerstone, the stone that is the foundation of all that we do. And, and in that same vein, in, in 1945 through 46, it says he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold things, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers, a den of thieves. Now, there's a lengthier explanation of that in some of the other Gospels. But, but Luke just suffices it to say, here's a part of his priestly role. He, and it has a little bit of a prophetic, prophetic in it also, I understand, because he came in and saw the sin and drove it out. But as a priest, he cleanses away sin. And he's cleansing the temple here. He's cleansing the very, the very place where the, the Jewish people saw as the, the place where God resides. And so he went in and he cleansed it. He cleansed the temple in the same way that today he cleanses those who are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He drives out our sin. He drives out our rebellion. He drives out our selfishness and self-centeredness to focus on who he is. He not only cleansed the temple in Luke 22, he established and instituted the Lord's Supper. It was the last supper with those disciples it's the Lord's Supper for us today. We're going to come to that table in just a few minutes. And this table gives us a picture like nothing else of his priestly role. His body that hangs on a cross in our place. His blood that is the blood of the new covenant poured out for us that we might know him. If you go to the book of Hebrews, you find in Hebrews 8 and 9 particularly a discussion of the high priestly work of Christ and, and, and the new covenant that he is establishing. And, and, and the writer of Hebrews is just saying clearly there, I want you to understand Jesus has opened the way, but he's done more than just open the way in the lives of his people. He has cleansed us that we might walk in newness of life. That's the role of the priest. And so when he took that bread and took that cup, he, he showed his priestly character. He also praised for Peter. In, in, in Luke chapter 22 and verse 31, he, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that, that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you. I, I've done a priestly function here. For you, Peter, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, he knew it was going to fail. But when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Be a priest to them. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you this, Peter. The rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you even know me. Notice before he even told Peter that, he said, but when you have turned, the priestly work of Christ in our life is to turn us back to him, to draw us back to him, to change us in a, in a way that is not even in some ways humanly understandable, but for the glory of God 
and for our good. He serves as a priest. I I won't get into it. I won't read it now. But in in 22 verses 39 through 46, he just prays for God's will. Much like he did in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer there. He prays, Lord, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go to this cross. I don't want to carry out this. It's going to be painful. It's going to be horrible. I don't know anything about sin. And I'm going to take all the sin of every believer for all time upon me, and I'm going to suffer for their sin. I'm going to bear your wrath for their sin. I don't want to do that at one level. But Lord, I don't, want to, I don't want your will to be done. I don't want my will to be done. I want your will to be done. Now, there's a little bit of a, an interesting dichotomy there. The God is praying to God, saying, not my will, but your will be done. But understanding the Trinitarian nature of, of, of God, we, we understand Jesus is in many ways saying to us, listen, this is how I pray because this is how you need to pray. As your priest, I am, as your high priest, your great high priest, I'm giving you instruction here. He is our prophet. He is our priest, which we will celebrate in just a moment. And he's our king. I'm not going to go into that in depth because next Sunday, Pastor Scott is going to preach on the triumphal entry. But the triumphal entry takes place there in Luke 19 when he comes into the city and all the people start saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean, it blew the Pharisees out of the water. And, and they said, look, Jesus, you've got to rebuke your disciples. They're calling you God. They're calling you king. They're saying you're coming in, in the Lord's place. Rebuke them and tell them to be quiet. And he said, I tell you this, if, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. He must be acknowledged as king. The disciples in his day and the disciples in our day still have a struggle with what does that kinghood mean? What does it mean that he's the king of glory? What does it mean that he is establishing the kingdom of God? He makes it clear in these passages that, that the kingdom as we would understand it has been delayed in a sense, but it's still present. It, it's here and not yet at the same time. But he is a king. And he is coming again, Luke 21, 25 through 28. He talks about, you know, there'll be signs and these things will be happening because the redemption is drawing near. My coming, my second coming is drawing very, very near. He's our prophet. He's our priest. He's our king. As our prophet, he shows us what God is like and tells us what God demands as our priest he steps in our place and and takes our sin and our inability to follow the full demands of God to follow the demands of God at all and he does it perfectly and he steps in our place and he becomes our priest in all righteousness and as as Johnny prayed earlier he, he clothes us in the righteousness of himself as our priest As our king, he rules. He is Lord. The apostle Paul said to the Roman Christians, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, 
confess with your mouth that Jesus has claim on my life and I submit to him because I am his servant, doulos, slave. I look to him for guidance. I look for him to reign. I look for his authority in my life. And I graciously and gladly submit to that authority because he is king. This period of time that we call the Easter season, celebrating He is alive, the reality of the resurrection. We'll talk about that on April the 1st. But we celebrate the goodness of His offices because His offices are gracious gifts to us. He comes as our prophet, He comes as our priest. He comes as our king. And when we come to this table, we come to bow before him. As believers, we come to take that bread and hold that in our hand and and reflect on the fact that his body was given in our place. We hold that cup, and and while that's just fruit of the vine, just just a representative of it in in a sense, we recognize it, it symbolizes, it stands for, it points us to His blood, the blood of the new covenant that is poured out that we might live. That we might know His righteousness. That our lives might be changed. and That our lives which were in rebellion to Him might be to His glory. So this morning if you're here and you're a believer, I invite you to share in this table with us. If If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you are confessing with your mouth that he is Lord I invite you to this table if you're not this is not to single you out don't get me wrong but if you're not I want you to think about those elements not partake in them as an unbeliever but to think about them what does it mean that Christ died for sinners of which I am the chiefest. What does it mean that Christ gave his life 2,000 years ago that you might come and have a relationship with Almighty God? What does it mean that, as Scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin, period. So they shed the blood of animals and the sacrifices in the temple until The perfect sacrifice comes, and it has come. He has come, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I I invite you to think about the bread and the juice and think about the bread and the fruit of the vine and think about what it means. And, And Perhaps where you're sitting, just cry out to God. God, show me your grace and show me your presence. Call me. Lord, I want to I understand this by your Holy Spirit. Perhaps the most pertinent prayer in all of Scripture is, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me. I need your grace. I need your Holy Spirit as we sang about.
Lord, have mercy on me and do your work in my life. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? And as those deacons who will be serving come and prepare themselves to serve these elements.